Thanks for tuning into this episode of Thank You Now What, a podcast about life after service. I'm your host, Matt DeVivo. The show is produced by Ben Murray. On this episode, we spoke with Chase Martin. Chase is a former U.S. Marine and veteran of the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. He served as a machine gunner in the infantry and is highly revered for bravery in combat by his other platoon mates, including the person who introduced us. During a deployment to Fallujah, Iraq from 2005 to 2006, Chase was critically injured by a roadside bomb which would have taken his life if it weren't for his fellow Marines' life-saving actions. An incredibly painful and lengthy recovery would follow, lasting several years. After battling to regain both his physical and mental strength, Chase began to explore the world as a traveling photographer, often taking jobs that paid in room and board wherever he could find them. This led to him traveling to more than 70 countries over the past five years. To see what he's been up to, go check him out on Instagram at chase underscore me around the world, one word. Uh, that's chase underscore me around the world on Instagram. We'll also link it in the show notes so you don't forget. We don't usually include disclaimers on the show, but just wanted to say quickly that you may want to listen with headphones if you've got the kids around. We'll be discussing some of Chase's experiences in a very authentic manner. I think the Marine Corps equips you with some psychological skills that are extremely useful in war and in the service and can be in life, but in certain scenarios, they would uh, they would be a weakness. They would they would come back to to hurt you. We hope you enjoy our conversation. Thanks for listening. What's up, guys? Hey, hey how you doing, man? Chase, <laughs> where are you actually joining us from, other than a, a, a corner of a room? Yeah, I'm joining you from Guadalajara, Mexico, okay, which is you- actually, uh, it's incredible. It's fantastic. It's uh, it's Central West Mexico. And okay. uh, I've been down here in Mexico for creeping up on five months now scooting all around taking language classes and uh doing a little bit of work here and there and shooting photos you said you were in school or class or something when we were trying to schedule so are you taking spanish or taking other classes are you teaching something or what's that all about no taking spanish i'm taking spanish i'm boning up on my spanish because i am moving to chile that uh (laughs) that move you less often hear about where people immigrate to Chile, I'm doing that on Friday. So I'm going to try to make my way in there and then kick off what I think will be a, a year to try out living in South America. Yeah. You don't seem like the guy who chooses a place to live, just like a place to be based on what we've seen uh, so far. Right. Yeah. I mean, of course I've got my personal motivations. I want to live in South America. I can live, uh, with a good standard of living down there. And also mm-hmm. I met a girl that I'm really into. So, and I have a bunch of friends there. So the move is a lot easier for me because that's kind of like my, that would be my special ability. I can kind of live anywhere that I, that I fancy and I, I can, I can make it work almost yeah, anywhere. I, yeah. We look at your, so we looked at your photography on your Instagram as like a first step before I went back and talked to Steve and, and just got a bunch of dirt yeah. on you. But how do you actually explain to people what you do? Okay. So to explain it best, I am a traveler by lifestyle, Mm -hmm. meaning I have no fixed address. I'm constantly moving, nomadic. But what I do is I do work exchange, and I take up very, I mean, 
jobs as uh, pretty much anything you can imagine. Uh, working as a farm hand on various, various different farms, uh, working in hostels, working, teaching English. God, I've been a houseboy. Uh, that's like a... What the hell does like that Kato, mean? That's like Cato Kalen. You know Cato Kalen, the famous... Uh, <laughs> Wait, like, like a we were just talking about OJ. Yeah, so I, oh, okay. I was a, I was a professional buddy for a month for a jeweler. Okay, this this guy was like, hey, I need you. Uh, I just need somebody to walk my dog. And then when I got there, okay, all right, I'll back it up. So pretty much what I do is I, I do these because it gives me a vehicle. It's an opportunity for me to practice what I love, which is photography. Okay, and uh, I, I am. In the photography field, the one segment of it that I've been able to kind of carve out a niche is commercial photography. But I like, that's not like, I don't really want to take photos of bewildered people on their honeymoon in pools. So like, I much rather go out and explore and shoot photos of people and festivals and, and kind of do that. But that doesn't always pay very well. And there's a lot of competition in that market because everybody's got a camera phone. So like it's, you know, but, uh, to do what I love, I find these different odd jobs that give me the ability to kind of get in underneath the skin of a culture of a community and have that nexus, that doorway in more so than a regular tourist would have. So I scour through the internet or on sites like Workaway, HelpX, there's a lot of different sites in which I do Workaway, which is going to, I throw in some work doing some sort of job that I find that I'm like, All right, I think I'm capable or I can wing this or I can, you know, uh, fake it and make it work. And then, uh, that's going to give me the chance to, to stay inside the country and you have a built in social network and everything in a circle. But yeah, I was okay. a house boy. I was a house boy for a, uh, for a jeweler who, uh, had like, you know, chihuahuas can't be left alone. And you have to like, I think you have to shake pennies at them or something to get them to shut up. Something like that. They have some sort of like severe built-in mental deficiency. Well, like this, this dude who actually, like, this sounds like super disparaging, but this dude is like a really nice guy. He had that similar issue. And so his husband put an ad out being like, Hey, I just need a dog walker. And I was like, cool. I can be in this French village. I speak some like survival French. I was like, this would be great to shoot photos of the Provence uh, countryside. But when I showed up there, I was like, all right, I'm here to walk the dog four times a day. And he's like, all right, listen, there's a little more to this. Like, <laughs> I got to take off. I'm a hotelier. Here's my husband. You know, entertain him. Talk to him. Play games. Whatever it takes, you know. And so I was like a houseboy in that sense. I had my own little house. And I'd come over, and then we'd, uh, we'd hang out. <laughs> was he, like, bedridden or something? No, no, he was highly mobile. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But he, um, he just could not, he would go into like these, 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 uh, these spells of melancholy if he was mm. by himself. You know what I mean? Yeah. It was a, it was a great experience there, but it was exhausting because you run out of things to talk about. And so you just, um, play the would you rather game and boy, that could get colorful. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Jesus. So your, your MOI is like you, you kind of, so you've been to a shitload of countries. I don't know if you know the exact number. Yeah. I've had a long layover and someone has asked me, so I tallied it up and, uh, I'm at 76 over my lifetime and every one of them and, and, uh, every one of them would be ranging from a minimum of a couple weeks passing through. This would be like your Macedonia, 
or maybe you're Albania, and then anywhere up to six years, which would be like Philippines, where uh, like I pretty much grew up four years, China, you know, mm-hmm. um, and then everything in between, usually a, a few months at least in each country. What was that, like as a kid? Yeah, as a kid, my folks worked for the State Department, and so uh, principally my dad, my mom left the service once she had all of us kids, and then we were, well, like I was two weeks away from being born Filipino, so I would have been that like jerk off. Like if you asked him like, Hey, where are you from? I'd be like, I'm Filipino. And they'd be like, fuck off. <laughs> you know? But, uh, you're still working on your Spanish though. So maybe they wouldn't believe you. Yeah. Right. <laughs> dude. Dude. So the first six months of my, Oh no, sorry. Back that up. Six years of my life was in the Philippines. And, uh, it was during a pretty, pretty dodgy time. They were having the coup and everything like that. And yeah. so we had to beat feet out of there. But when you're like a little kid, you can, you can suffer that and be like totally cool with it. It's like not a big deal. And then came back to the States. And then after yeah. about four years, we turned around and went to China. And so I spent those like teenage angsty years in a uh, central part of Beijing growing up there in a little expat island, you know, which yeah. uh, has its own challenges. The, uh, the guy who started Sear School, Nick Rowe, he was assassinated in the Philippines in the eighties. Okay. Yeah. It says like 89. I mean, I knew this, I just didn't know the date, but, um, yeah, 89. Yeah. I don't know if they I actually have a buddy. I have a buddy who got killed in the Philippines, um, in first group. Yeah. A lot of people don't know that we've lost people in the Philippines after nine 11, but you know, not a lot, but we have. Yeah, that southern bit is hot. That is where all the, the pirates hang out. And I think it's Abu Sayyaf. Abu Sayyaf launches attacks, and they work out of that, those southern, that southern part of the Philippines. And actually, it was last year I went to Malaysian Borneo. I went to explore those islands there, and the, the Malaysians have gone to quite a, uh, quite length, to quite a length to, like, to keep the pirates from coming in. And they have to have like tons of gunboats and everything like that because those guys are... They are nasty. Yeah, that's a crazy. That's crazy. Have you ever been over to uh, Asia or any of that part of the world, Southeast Asia? No, I haven't. I haven't really traveled to uh, like proper Asia, other than the Middle East. I think that counts as Asia, but not really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh man, it'll suck you in. There's a lot of people that that end up there, and they're like, "Oh yeah, I'm just going to do a month here," and then they end up like twelve months, nine months, you know, mm-hmm. uh, in yeah. Bangkok. You know, it's, it's like, can get uh, seductive. Colonel Kurtz got stuck there for a while. Too. <laughs> yeah. Sell your wife, sell your kids. What was that? There was those guys that worked for him. I was like, God, that's pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's what happens when you go too far past the uh, Dolong Bridge, I think it is. Don't go past the Dolong Bridge. Because that one bridge, okay. Chief, Chief worried about. <laughs> Ain't going great. into Cambodia. Yeah. Great movie, great book, too. Oh, yes. I prefer the book because uh, the idea of Congo is just to me is after being in Asia, I was like, ah, I ain't really like that. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so bad. Yeah. Do you think you'd do what you do if you didn't start off like that with your, you know, parents living abroad and that kind of stuff? No, man. I, uh, it's weird. Like, you know, I, uh, I was probably like a naturally pretty timid and, uh, sweet child. Like, I wanted to have my cozy little existence in, in Arlington, Virginia. I wanted to just keep playing ball. I wanted to have my friends. I wanted to have that stability. So like the Filipino part was just like the, the, the preface, like that really doesn't mean anything. Like the really formative years for me was like just having that foundation in Arlington and then moving over to China was actually 
shocking and traumatic in a way because you lose sports you lose a lot of things that you're like connected to or just forming a connection to and so like when we had finished our tour in china after four years all i wanted was to be back in the states and have some stability and oddly enough later i would actually this is as insane as it sounds i actually joined part of wanting to join the marines was for having a stable tight little community which i can entrench myself into because I just felt like I was kind of at that whimsy of moving around. But then later you kind of gravitate towards it because you develop those skills that make you comfortable in that, that environment, constantly yeah. moving around, constantly changing things, you know? So it's weird. Yeah. That you come around to it. You have a twin brother too. And you guys both Marines. Yeah. yeah. So when we moved back, we both would have started freshman year in high school together, but we had gone to a private school in China and we both had not done very well. Um, because it is just the, the tempo and the, the curriculum is much harder. Now coming back to the States, we were like all stars, you know, but, uh, but I had elected, this is like salient because I had elected to stay back a year. Cause I was like, Oh my gosh, I really need to, as insane as it sounds, I was like, I really need to to make sure I do well in this public school system. (laughs) So so I stay back and it's great. So he was a great ahead of me. I elected to stay back. Yeah. Yeah, I I, uh, I asked my recruiter if I could do the uh, GED and just not graduate high school and join the army sooner, and he was like, "No, nah, you don't. You don't really want to do that." So I got to thank wow. him for that. Yeah, really. My yeah. Uh, when I was first uh, approaching the services um, in tenth grade, the army recruiter advised me to do that. Really? Yeah, because he was like, "Hey, man, you want to go and be special forces or rangers? Drop out. Get started." <laughs> Imagine. Man, that guy Getting can retire going. and be a guidance counselor afterwards. Yeah. Yeah. So I was like, I don't know. There's, there's something says I should finish this first. Yeah. They might be expecting me in PE and be really wondering where's that, that Martin kid. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. So I, I finished that out. But yeah. But then, of course, uh, 9 11 happened when I was in 10th grade. And that was. Um, that was a big motivation, uh, like an external motivation, higher yeah. level motivation for me to want to join, you know, yeah. big, I'm in DC in Arlington, right. the Pentagon, they hit our building, my God, you know, that was right there. So it was, um, it was pretty real. It was pretty. And in my family, we had a, a serve, um, a lot of members from the family has served in, in some form or another. So, yeah. So what appealed about the Marines as opposed to the other branches to you? It sounds ridiculous. It's going to sound so bad. A lot of Marines are going to be like, oh, no, don't say that. But uh, I was like, you know what? I, uh, I went to the Army recruiter, and the Army recruiter said, uh, if you want to be Special Forces and all this kind of really high-speed stuff, you got to sign up for six years. And I said, well, what happens if I don't become a Special Forces guy? They're like, oh, you'll be a paratrooper or some other, you know, you'll be whatever. There's all sorts of different places will find a, find a home for you. And then uh, the Marine recruiter said, yeah, you do it for four years. And I thought to myself, well, it's kind of like high school. If I don't like it, I kind of have a good idea of how much time I'm working with. You know what I mean? And uh, I was like, I'll do this. And my brother, he had already signed up ahead of me. And my mind, it was just, it was super simple. It was like, all right, I'm just going to go. I'm going to do my part and then I'll figure out and go from there. You know what I mean? But it was just kind of this, this uh, like not to make a starship troopers reference, but it was like, it's just what you do. Yeah. It's what citizens do, you know? And then on a personal level, I was like, I want to have that. I, so I went to a, a, like a, 
a kind of like a preppy public school, like where it was like a lot of clicks and stuff like that. And I'm like the new, you know, new kid. And, uh, I'm like, I know the capital of Niger as Lagos, you know, I'm like a complete dork coming out of private school. (laughs) (laughs) And so like, I immediately fit into like the, the, the bizarro kid category. And I just didn't feel like I had a place inside that that high school circle and so i was like you know what where are they all going and everyone's like oh i'm going to university of virginia i'm going to james madison i was like yeah i'm not going to go to any of those i'm going to go and and make my own little world and i felt like that shedding of all that kind of like all right you've got enough cool points to be here uh thing like that wouldn't wouldn't be the case in the marine corps and so i was like i want to be infantry i want to do that and see what happens you know where it goes from there yeah yeah that four-year thing it's just so arbitrary, but I signed up for four years because I was like, high school was four years. College would be four years. Not going to college. Four years sounds all right. And yeah, I don't know why. It's yeah. so stupid. <laughs> yeah. Could you imagine like Roman soldiers back in the day? They're like, I think it was 25 years. They're like, I'm yeah. doing 25 years. That's what people do. That's <laughs> like uh, barely less than the average life expectancy back then. Anyway, you're basically <laughs> signing up for a whole lifetime. Right. Yeah. So were you and your brother both in Iraq, like Fallujah at the same time? I got to imagine this is like the most nerve wracking thing for parents ever to go through. Yeah. My folks were not fans of this, this setup, but my brother, he had joined to be admin and then they, they pulled this like incredible move. I got to give them points for this. They were like, Hey, listen, your contract changed. They're like the second MEPS visit before he ships. He's like, your contract has changed, son. You're going to be infantry. Right. And he's like, what? I thought I was going to be a paperwork guy, an admin guy. And he's like, Nope, you're going to be infantry. That's what you, so he was like, well, I got to sign up. I got to do it. So he's like, I'll just, I'll just sign this paper and go off to be infantry. So he went in and he dropped into one eight alpha and he ended up going to Fallujah for his first tour. And he ended up, taking part in phantom fury so this is a guy that's like i want to be admin now he's in phantom fury as a rifle <laughs> yeah so he took to it well he, he did he did good and uh he yeah. came out all right and then i followed on his heels and i went in into the infantry and um ended up in afghanistan for my first tour so we were staggered to answer your question we were staggered okay. i was in afghanistan and he uh, he was in Iraq, then, and then he came home in Afghanistan, and then I came home, and then he did a Mew, and I, I went to Iraq. A Mew is like when you go on a boat as a Marine, right? Yeah, it's where they, they send them off on a boat, and uh, they kind of float around getting ready for whatever might come, whatever might happen. Anything that pops up in the news, they kind of respond to, or they sit off the coast. And in his case, they were going to head straight to Iraq, and instead the, um, the Lebanon War kicked off. Uh, I think it was the second Lebanon War, which is... Uh, you know, it's connection to, to your last guest, Abby Deutsch. Yeah. 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 And, yeah uh, so, so he was uh, off the coast getting ready to evacuate people from there. And so, uh, missed out on his Iraq tour. But yeah, I was already, I was already banged up by then. I was already in the hospital. Um, yeah. You know, so you, so you, yeah. So, so you, uh, <laughs> you show up to like Fallujah, Ramadi, Iraq, 2005, which is like the heat of the shit, like real war. I, uh, I know you probably don't, Toot your own horn, but uh, when Steve was like, oh, man, you got to talk to Chase. I can't talk about Steve without imitating him, but he's, he goes, yeah. man, you got to talk to Chase, man. He's uh, he's interesting, but he's got huge balls. He's got gigantic balls, man. He's You got to talk to him about it. So he's like, you guys are you guys are rolling around. There's, you know, snipers. There's urban warfare. There's IEDs everywhere. There's ambushes yeah. everywhere. 
you're like top gunning on a Humvee. Um, yes. you got, you got wounded multiple times. Second time you got your arm blown, almost clear off. Yes. And, uh, how much, how much of that shit do you, do you, uh, want to talk about like your, your, uh, your time there? Everything. Talk about anything. Yeah. yeah. Um, as far as the tour, one thing on a personal level, I, I try not to, when I speak to it, I mean, it's okay to speak from a voice of a 35 year old man with my observations yeah. and feelings, of a 35 year old guy. But I also, at times I, I would like to shift my perspective to what I was when I was a 20 year old guy, you know, what I really was when I was there. And so what it turned out to be was a fairly like standard tour. If you could use that, that term to, to define it, it was a lot of that hit and run attacks. Snipers was a huge problem during our time in Fallujah during our tour and uh, IEDs accounted for a ton of guys getting wounded. That was really yeah. what, what, what uh, generate a lot of wounded. And um, I would say if I had to, to sum up a lot of the feelings that I had there, and this is, a, I think is a fair account is a lot of frustration. We're on the receiving end. We're getting beat up by enemy that held a lot of tactical advantages uh, they were able to choose when to fight, where to fight, everything. And uh, they seemed to magically hit us when we were really, like, not in our prime. They never, like, hit us, like, when we were coming out the gate. Like, they hit us at the end of patrols. They hit us, like, you know, when, in really, like, uh, not ideal spots. They were pretty um, pretty creative, and they were pretty uh, yeah. deft at their, at their work. So um, when I got hit that second time, it really was, like, the, the culmination of a pretty shitty month. February was really rough. There was a lot of people, uh, people getting shot by snipers, a lot of people getting wounded. And then I was a uh, uh, gunner. I was kind of shifted around. So I, I was a tow gunner. And so I never got to fulfill my dream of like blowing up tanks. Like I always wanted to blow up a lot of tanks coming at us. Like that's, that's a, it's a fair, fair dream, yeah. <laughs> but like, but I never got, so on the job, I was uh, converted over to a machine gunner. And so, like, uh, I know a lot of machine gunners out there and be like, no, you weren't, you fuck. But um, I, I, you know, <laughs> spent a lot of time behind a 240. So when you say that the enemy had the tactical advantage, what was the root of that? Was it just that they didn't have to adhere to strict uh, rules of engagement or that we hadn't figured out the best way to engage them yet or what? Because this is pretty early on in the war, 05, 06. Yeah, totally, both. So, like, we followed... I mean, this is me. This is my, this is my 20 year old perspective was what we do is we drive around and we provide a presence. So they know that we're in charge. Like that needs to be established. Like we have this massive base, you know, to the North of them and all this stuff like, but by having our presence on the street, we're open to be attacked. We can be attacked pretty easily that we follow these routes and these routes, like where we move around and, and it's pretty, pretty easy to guess where we're going to be. It's easy to see where we're coming from and, and, uh, and we'll be back. And so they had like the, really the, they could wait it out. They could put yeah. IEDs down, you know, as soon as our convoy passed, cause they know somebody's going to pass eventually. And so like, we didn't really figure out an effective way to counter a lot of their, uh, their threats, except through, through sheer will and kind of stubbornness. We just keep going back out. You know, that was, it seemed to be the, the move that was us. You know? yeah. And so, um, I, I was like, 
lot of like we would do things sometimes we'd, we'd change it up we would jump out of the vehicles and we'd some people would hide inside of buildings and things like this but um god they have dogs everywhere they start barking as soon as things um you know as soon as like yeah it's like iraqi from, adt right <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah stray dogs yeah it kicks off in the first 20 minutes that you're out there you know, yeah. shuffling around. And so, uh, and then, and then, um, also you just had a lot of, um, uh, other actors that weren't working in concert. You had the Iraqi police, you had the Iraqi army. I mean, these were not the best allies. Sometimes they were, they had some, there's some lacking. Yeah. So it, it was, uh, it was frustrating, but I really lucked out. I had awesome NCOs. And uh, I look at them as, as big brothers, and uh, I still, like, in a lot of ways, when I hang around them, like, I really do slip into this, like, weird fugue state of being, like, a, a younger brother to them, no matter how old or mature I like to believe I am, you know? And so, um, because I, I really, truly trusted them, uh, I loved them, and uh, they, they make good on the words. Like, what, they, what they say, they back it up with action. And so yeah. that's, that's a lot of the reason I'm here today is, you know, because of guys like Steve and because yeah. of Dave Abney, Dane, there's other guys in the platoon, guys uh, that really came through um, in a lot of situations, not just when I was wounded. Yeah, it's funny because they're like a year older than you. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> and I would like really, I would, I would go to these guys for like fatherly advice. Like, you know, <laughs> put their hand on your shoulder like... <laughs> all right <laughs> i need some advice <laughs> i need a date for prom <laughs> so you're a top gunner on a humvee in a in a yeah. urban urban kind of fighting arena you are you just like a bullet magnet or what yeah it depends they really liked uh the first vehicle they like to hit the lead vehicle and they like to hit the second vehicle for or sometimes the rear vehicle i don't know what the maybe they felt like uh it was a timing thing they wanted to get their timing down, so they were like, ah, we just missed the first one, let's go for the second one. Or they thought it was maybe a command vehicle of some sort, which yeah. they would maybe be right. I don't want to give away state secrets, but um, <laughs> they really, they like to hit that first vehicle as well because they were afraid, I think, that other vehicles might spot a threat. So by that position, you did you did soak up a lot of, a lot of hits. Um, they weren't the best shots. Their snipers were good, I think, if you, if you stayed still. And, and thankfully, by nature of being in a turret, and we were always on the move for the most part, or I'd stay down and out of the site when we go static. Like, I was generally okay for getting shot. Being blown up, oh, yeah. constantly. That was a mess. You're always yeah. getting whacked. Constantly. Yeah, or near misses all the time. Yeah. Yeah, and that's, that's aggravating. Yeah. <laughs> <Definitely>. <laughs> Also, uh, one thing I also know from being buddies with Steve, and we're going to have him on the podcast soon, but he's twisted. And yeah, how do you keep it light in that kind of scenario? Because you can be trading fire with the enemy and then laughing at some at some dumb shit on the same day, even in the same moment. It helps that we were kids. We were young, young guys. And yeah. so we were just like naturally predisposed and built for that. But yeah, Steve was particularly good at that. I think the Marine Corps equips you with some psychological skills that are extremely useful in war and in the service and can be in life, but in certain scenarios and certain times or uh, under certain stresses, which I would later face, 
they would uh, they would be a weakness. They would they would come back to to hurt you. These would be things that could be twisted. They all have like a double edge to, you know. Yeah. And so we would have we were naturally predisposed to handle things within our platoon, to laugh and joke and make light of of really tough situations. But at the same time, we would you know internalize and and hold on to a lot of things and not not let it let it out when we're really really in bad in a bad place you know like a, a kind of an honor culture type thing yeah and also just like i don't know this is going to sound really dumb but it's like this is not being a pussy <laughs> yeah whatever that culture fits into <laughs> yeah don't be a punk ass i think that's the pc where you can say just don't be a punk ass i think that uh the marines have i think in the army you have three general orders but the marines have more is don't be a pussy one of them yeah, I think it's sixteenth, man. Okay. <laughs> it's in there. So you talk about getting blown up, which I think is a um it can kind of be a nondescript term if people don't have first hand experience. So yeah. You can be blown up by a, like a nearby explosion that you get a concussion from the shockwave. You could be blown up and get hit with direct impact or shrapnel and get but if you're driving around uh, where you are the whole time, you know, yeah. it's it's just happy, happening constantly in varying degrees probably, right? Yeah, and, and also you can have the more psychological where you see another vehicle disappear in a cloud of, of an explosion and just you have this all-feeling drain out of your, your body and kind of nauseous feeling where you just go, holy Christ, I just watched an entire vehicle and it just explode possibly and everyone's dead that i know that's in there or one time i remember an explosion occurring behind us and i look back and the vehicle commander said hey uh what's going on back there and i said i don't see anything it was a white phosphorus arty shell that was rigged to go and it just blew across the whole highway and i just couldn't we just took off <laughs> until yeah. they caught up thankfully nobody was was hurt but they were um pretty jacked up by that so yeah you there's a lot of you get um you get used to that aspect, but as you accumulate more of these situations, more of these experiences, your young mind falls into this uh, fiction where you're like, I think I'm going to be okay. And these other situations behind it, like all these experiences behind it validate that further and further that you're like, well, I'm definitely not supposed to get hit. Yeah. So you kind of like a hot hand, uh, like a hot hand in poker or uh, yeah. in basketball. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you start putting like weird things up for on the line. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, yeah. yeah. Firstborn and stuff. And that's it. And that's how you really, you get taught a lesson. Yeah. And uh, yeah, when so I got hit. Yeah. 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 Your time came it. up. Yeah, it did. And on a fairly like, I think it's always the case. Like it was a very routine patrol day. It was like the first 15 minutes of our patrol, we were actually just heading to base. And then from there we would, we would start our patrols off of, uh, out of the train train station from the North side of Fallujah. And we were just like, I think it was just on a whim. Our gunny was like, Hey, let's just cut through this instead of taking just like a military access road. Think nothing of it. It's so like, whatever. All right, we'll just go that way. And then when we were creeping up on an intersection where we would bang a right, um, I saw the police just start clearing out. They're, they normally hold down that intersection. They just kind of cleared off. And I looked like, oh, this is kind of weird. 
And at that moment I was about to, I was like clearing them out of the way. Just let me know, Hey, get the fuck out of here. And when I was lowering myself down out of the turret, this massive explosion, just, I felt like I was in the eye of it went off about my two o'clock and, uh, threw me downwards into the vehicle. And, uh, what I had thought was like two meters away. Everyone told me it was like 20 meters away. It was just a massive bomb. And what I didn't realize, which is like pretty funny now at the time, or now thinking about it, is like uh, they had hoped that I would find these fake IEDs that they put in the road. They were like so obvious, like they were giant, like <laughs> gray canisters. But yeah. I was just like thoroughly in uh, like complacent mode <laughs> and just went by them. Thankfully, to our benefit and other Marines' benefit, because uh, the whole idea was for us to push beyond and hold tight next to the real ID, waiting for EOD to defuse the fake bombs, and then they would touch that one off. So, in case, and so what the pretty much the insurgents did is they were just like, well, let's just fucking waste this guy, because like we, we got to take this before they discover this bomb that we worked so diligently on. We put so much work into, so they right. they lit that off, and uh, and when I drop down in that tur- turret, uh, it takes a few seconds, and then it registers. Oh my god, I am hit very badly because you see your hand turned around and blood spraying around everywhere, and everyone's eyes are super wide. That is a feeling where you go, oh god, okay. Yeah. The expressions on other people's faces says a lot more than your hand turned around backwards and blood spraying everywhere. Yeah. You know? There's a Seinfeld episode, not to make light of it, but he's talking about the uh, when they when they have to invite other doctors to the operating theater. And, you know, you never want to be on the table when someone else is like, I got to see this. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 I I always and, you know, later I would find out that I would be uh, like a the guinea pig for everyone's like like a school circle for young doctors in military Mm -hmm. medicine. They would just like bring all these like. And they just look at me at that the way they would later rebuild my arm. And, um, yeah, it's it, in my case, though, it worked out well because I, I was a fairly miraculous case as far as uh, physical recovery. Yeah. Do you ever read Johnny Got His Gun? No. Really? No. It's like uh, Metallica song, right? The, Is that uh, when the dude that loses all of one? shit? One, one, yeah. Oh, one yeah. by Metallica. Um, so, you know, it's about a guy in the, like, the final days of the first world war gets hit by an arty shell and uh quadruple amputation blind can't speak like basically like his life just becomes like a medical purgatory and everyone keeps him everyone like all the doctors want to keep him alive like in the name of science but he's just you know like in pure existential agony and he starts tapping in morse code like please kill me on his pillow with his head it's fucking gruesome they uh they so I think they like blacklisted mm. that book during other times of war in our country. Like you couldn't find it. Um, yeah. That's hard to find the uplifting message within that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's kind of like, uh, I, I think I remember reading, I mean, it's, it's pretty strong, like anti-war book, of course, but um, I mean, the Metallica song is fucking great, but yeah. uh, you know, everything else. And I think they, you know, there's like some old, really old movie about it and, and i think metallica it was cheaper for them to just buy all the rights outright to the whole movie to use it in yeah. their music video than to just use clips so i think they own the movie now but i mean it's 
it's nothing like that today, but this is just like a wow. twisted fictional take on it. It's a, uh, it's a pretty interesting read if you get a hand on it. Uh, I'm going to go for the movie. That sounds like a fun date night movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm like, Hey, sweetie, be thankful. You're not dealing with this. I could be yeah, exactly. on your pillow. Kill me every night. <laughs> Jesus. Holy yeah. hell. No, I, I have to say this. I mean, like, First, I mean, I would be totally remiss if I wasn't to note the fact that the platoon mates that I served with, I mean, were unbelievable. Like they, like it further added to this belief that I had that I was, I was really like walking among giants and heroes on Mm. that day and other days, because I, I looked at how they responded. I mean, guys like Steve, it seemed like just in moments he was there on scene against all good judgment, really, you know, cause there's follow up attacks and things like that, that were occurring. And, uh, he was told he was ordered to, to not leave his position. And he did to get me out of there. And without his tourniquet that he placed on my arm, cause he was, uh, picking up for other folks. <laughs> he, uh, um, I would have died. 100%. Yeah. I mean, I lost a, a ton of blood. And, uh, and I had my good buddy, one of my best friends, Dave Babnu, a guy who said like, when we were on the bus, when we were leaving to go to Cherry Point to fly to Iraq, who's like, listen, listen, boy, you watch after me. I'll watch after you, boy. That's how he talks. It's a weird kind of Philly, <laughs> Philly way. And I see Marlon yeah, Brando or something. Yeah, yeah. Listen to me now, boy. Yeah. <laughs> oh God. Yeah. Like Marlon Brando of apocalypse. Now <laughs> you can only shoot his head down. <laughs> A big boy. Uh, so, uh, yeah. So, uh, no, he's good to go. But, uh, he, uh, he, he and Steve, uh, got in there. And if it wasn't for those two guys, um, yeah. I was dead. And my, my, my uh, fire team leader, uh, a guy named Blaine Cherry, he kept me from going into shock. Cause good God, that is scary. Dying is terrifying. And honestly, it sounds crazy, but like, I still, I would have to admit this. I still have, um, I'm reading a book, um, the Nile of death by Ernst Becker. And it's kind of like a psychoanalytic book, like it delves into uh, human's fear of death and yeah. how that is like an underlying terror that we all share. And we like cover it with like neurotic body armor and, and yeah. stories that keep us um, uh, shielded away from this yeah. ever present fact that we're going to have legacy, to legacy, immortality, rebirth, most religion. It's a way of escaping death. Exactly. And right. exalting the hero, the hero who laughs in the face of death and things like this, yeah. like this, this kind of idea. And, um, this sounds very deep, but it's, it's true. Like I am terrified of death and more yeah. so because of that experience that I had, because, um, while I held it together, as you slowly, your breathing becomes depressed and it's harder to breathe. It got to the point where I was like, Oh shit, my head, I got to choose between saying the last words I'm going to say on this earth or putting all my energy into taking some breaths. And, uh, Steve, he looked at me and he said, like, don't try to speak, just focus on breathing. Stay with us. Like, and I knew that they would have it covered. They would, if anything that was out of my hands was to occur, um, they would do their best to, uh, make sure that my family, um, you know, didn't, uh, didn't hear I died like a punk ass bitch. <laughs> no, don't take like a punk. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. I don't think anyone could fault you anyway, but, uh, it's 
hilarious that still the the Marine comes out in that moment. Yeah, <clears throat> it is. It is. And it's not like I had some sort of massive legacy or hero story that was going to be real. I was on no Achilles, but I was yeah. like, there's just no way that my short story is going to end like this. Me, you know, trying to suck wind in the back of a stupid Humvee with like, uh, what is dumb fruit loops and those little boxes of cereal. Like we had accumulated tons. Like it was just a, it was not the best setting to die in. Yeah. <laughs> not, uh, yeah, not, uh, not at home in bed with you cats and yeah. 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 You know, someone petting my hand. No, no, it was just scared men, uh, cold soaked in blood. And, uh, and, um, I remember this is, this is crazy, but it has to be said we're going. So I, I, we have run this route all the time when we have vehicles got banged up or we had drop off prisoners at the regimental detention facility. So I knew, I knew the route by the bumps. I knew the route by the, the lights overhead that would be on the MSR. And then when we turn off onto the power line road, going to camp Fallujah, I knew all this shit. So they were lying to me of course they're like we're two minutes out martin just hold on i was like there's no fucking way we're totally 10 minutes out in my head i'm like i'll hang on but like we'll do our best and then i remember we got in the base they're screaming at the guy let us through a casualty and we're just hauling ass on base and then we come to a sudden slowdown and everyone is you know, using naughty talk and full vulgar language. And I'm like, what was that? And you know what it was? It was an officer uh, playing volleyball with another, with his team or whatever. And uh, he felt that we were speeding and he had run out to try to slow down. <laughs> That's the back vehicle <laughs> while I'm back there bleeding to death. So it's like, it's like a scene from a movie. Yeah, it was one of the, it's one of the things I, I truly I grapple with today is how I, I possibly got in the way of probably like what was a legendary volleyball match <laughs> with my stupid injury. My dumb war came intruding in on Camp Fallujah's finest volleyball game. <laughs> so I made it. So I got there and the medical okay. guys uh, immediately took over. And they started administering care, and uh, and then I could I had permission to go unconscious in the helicopter, and they were like, okay, okay. because I was like afraid. I was like, if I if I just go to sleep, am I going to die? And they were like, no, you 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 know what I mean? I just go to sleep. (laughs) Yeah, I was like, all right, I'll do that. I choose that option, and I just went passed out and woke up next day and I'm back dead ER. Oh yeah, off to off to the races. Yeah. Hi, everyone. Quick break in the action here to say thank you for listening and to share a little bit of news. So we've got a new look to our website. Thank you. Now We're now hosted by Fireside, which is great for podcasts. It's a very simple design, but it has everything that you need as far as background on the show, social media and support links, a contact form, podcast player links, and even a built-in player where you can fire up an episode right on your browser. Uh, We also decided to include a tab specifically featuring all the nonprofit organizations we've had on the show. Just go to the website and click the nonprofits link at the top, or just type in thankyounowwhat.com slash nonprofits to check it out. Thanks, and let's get back to the show. So... Fallujah, probably uh, field hospital to Baghdad to probably Germany to probably Walter Reed. 
Yeah, that's right. They send you to the Balad, which is like a staging ground. Mm-hmm. And over there, I remember the first day I had to spend a couple days in, or no, two days in uh, back to the ER because I had like I had my arm when I woke up mm-hmm. and uh, it was all just like in your pocket or what? <laughs> yeah, it was like laying on in front of me and I could just see the tips of my fingertips black. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And mm-hmm. everything. uh and they were like, Chase, you're becoming black. No, I'm joking. No, they go, no. So I had this bandage and everything. And uh, I couldn't feel my arm whatsoever. Just intense amount of pain coming over my body. So everyone, if you're in fact at ER, you're just screaming for nurses. Morphine! Morphine! It's yeah. real Civil War hospital kind of vibe. And uh, doctors came in and uh, they just explained to you. They're like, listen, you're, you're, you're going to uh, lose your arm. Like they have charts, they 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 know what they're doing, and they're just like the odds are your arm's going to do nothing. It's just a huge infection risk. You're going to lose it up to your shoulder if you try to keep it. We're going to try to catch this thing off at the pass. Let's cut it off below the elbow and let's just do this thing. You know what I mean? And uh, you know I'm in complete hysterics. You know I'm like no, you can't do that. You know, yeah. and so I lied to them. Told them I was like I can feel my fingers. I can feel my fingers. Please don't take my arm. Begging, begging, begging. And I remember this dude, uh, no, this dude, this doctor, <laughs> this dude put me onto a wheelchair. He wheeled me into the hallway and chewed me out. He's like, listen, I just cut off two Marines, separate Marines' legs. I cut off another Marine's arm today, just today. He's like, I want to save your life. If you have septic shock and it spreads into your chest, to your heart and all that fun stuff, you're going to die. Do you realize that? And I yeah, I realize it, but I, I want to save my arm. You know, this is like a very, very important issue for me. I was willing to, that was my hill I was going to die on. And um, he's like, all right. So he put me in for irrigation debridement. And this uh, story, this situation would play out numerous times throughout my recovery for at least the first three months. Hmm. How many times they wanted to, to just get rid of the arm? Four times. I can remember specifically. One yes. of the times was hilarious. I remember I went to bed and I woke up the next day and they had brought in a three-legged dog into my room. And they were like, look, look how happy this dog is. <laughs> I mean, look at this dog. Look how happy it is. Uh, <laughs> did they give you be a golden retriever? <laughs> did they give you peanut butter too or what? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to say for that. For the listeners, like we're on video here and Chase's arm is looks totally normal. He's moving it around like, you know, just just want to throw that out there. Yeah. Yeah. It looks like there's a shark bite taken out of it. So that would later yeah. be all those uh, surgeries. So, yeah. And it's and uh, like um, they brought in the three legged dog. They put a book on my little nightstand next to my urine bottle, which said uh, living with one arm in a two armed world. And it had like these incredible chapters like. Aren't zippers a blessing? <laughs> you could really, you can really lose yourself in this book. So uh, I had a plastic surgeon, a uh, doctor by the name of, I don't know if he'd want to be mentioned uh, <laughs> in any connection with me after he listened to this, but uh, a guy by the name of Dr. Anand Kumar, an incredible plastic surgeon who took up my case, put together a dream team of doctors and they were like, listen, we have no idea how this is going to turn out. But if you are willing to go through possible hell that you're about to experience when it comes to grafts, irrigation debridements, every 
kind of surgery you can imagine to try to piece you back together. Let's go for it. Let's do it. This is really going to be kind of like uncharted territory because the amount of flesh that was lost in the cross section of everything that was, was taken away. And the fact that I really didn't have even the ability to touch my fingers together, couldn't move them. Um, they were like, we're going to, let's go see what's going to happen. And, um, and that would kick off what would turn into physically a six year recovery and physically and mentally both together, like a eight year recovery before I could find myself into a place where I would, where, I'm, where I could say I'm healthy. Yeah. yeah. My, uh, yeah. Uh, 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 a friend of mine lost, uh, about half his leg recently. And he showed me, I mean, he got this book, which was like, being intimate as an amputee and just had a, Oh yeah. It was like a, uh, it was a a bunch of illustrations and just showed like people having sex, using sex toys in the shower, like everything with every illustration was with, uh, was it incorporating the stump into it or just, I think something around it. Okay. I think it was both, but it was, it was, wild man i mean we just sat and like sat in his room at walter reed and just like you know again something i don't want to make light of but like no. how can you how can you not when you're sitting around with an army buddy you or uh yeah exactly you have to you have to I think it's, his wife was even there too and she's just like going you know yeah good. that was that's exactly the case i know a guy that lost his uh his dick and balls young gun lost his dick and balls young fella and he was um he was doing a uh, therapy on his arm. And I remember he was getting fitted for a prosthetic for a prosthetic dick. And I remember him getting told by the, the representative of like the prosthetic dick company, Acme Dick. <laughs> he was like, now this might seem like a, uh, like a joke, but you need to take this seriously. You know what I mean? Like yeah. this is a whole big book of dicks. And like one is like a utility dick. One's like a show dick. It's like one you show like it. <laughs> like when Christ. you're when you're having a date over and they're like, yeah, he's like a white guy. So he's like, yeah, you might be tempted to choose a black dick because you might find that funny. But think about that. You're going to be at home with his black dick and you might not want people. To- <laughs> I was like, I don't know. I don't even know where to come in on this. Talking to a guy who probably like even before the injury had limited capacity to take it seriously. Just being a young Marine. <laughs> I just, I said, listen, I think no matter what dick you, I was like, I felt like I was like, no matter what dick you choose, I think you're going to be happy with the results. <laughs> I don't even, I don't even begin with this. <laughs> oh, so, so, but that is such an important skill, especially when you're, you're dealing with uh, the wounded and guys that are injured because at the end of the day, it's a very lonely fight. So you're going to have to become, you're going to have to equip yourself with some skills and tools. And they're going to have to be, you're going to have to be very self-reliant because I went from having all these big brothers and all these people that I could lean on and guys I could look to, to watch my back. And now I was uh, alone in a room where you have these bewildered guests, bewildered people coming in yeah. along with your met, you have your, your doctors and everybody that makes sense there. You got your family, you got buddies from your platoon. It's great. And then, uh, and then you have like, you know, the Hooters girls that got off and they were told like by their shift manager, like, Hey, throw some, throw some extra wings to the guys up on the ward. You know what I mean? Mm. And get some photos and just, it's, it's a bizarre environment. I remember I had like a Pennsylvania 
congressman came in and explained to me like how he's building bridges in his district. You know, I think he was just yeah. like on break or whatever. So it's like this kind of weird world that you're thrust into, you're going to have to deal with this as much as you have all these, these people around you, it is largely your fight. It's going to be on yeah. your own. And it's really, it's your health. And you're going to have to live with that for, for as long as you're, you're destined to be here. Yeah. And you'd be yeah. like, I mean, probably some of your buddies stop by and you're like, Oh yeah, the vice president was here a couple of days ago, just saying what's up or this Senator or, or whatever. And then, but you re- you probably really just want your buddies to come by and, and, hang out like no big deal exactly i you you can't really have a conversation with condoleezza rice what are you going to talk about like we're not gonna like she's gonna come by because that's that's part of her job and she's gonna say thank you for your service and you're gonna say thank you you know it's my pleasure and that's and that's that's gonna be the extent of it you're not gonna like talk about the you know like how impressive your urine output that day was or like, yeah. hey, or talk cool. to her about like uh, our our strategy in this region of the world. What do you think? Right. Yeah. 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 I'm. Mean, yeah. And sometimes, you know, I would say while they did as good as as one could do as far as taking care of the wounded, it is an incredibly, incredibly difficult position when you're thrust from that environment immediately into that hospital environment, and then you're that's it. You know what I mean? Yeah. You're on a whole different track. You're yeah. you're leaving. That's it. You know, and you yeah. go from being so strong and so uh, capable to being incredibly weak. I remember, oh, I remember when the doctors came in and said, "We're going to stick this catheter in your dick," and uh, you have, you know, um, and I was just not having. It. I was like, "This is the cherry on top of a cake. I do not want to eat. I don't want to have anything else to do with this." And I locked myself in the bathroom and I wept like a child. Because I just thought to myself, I don't have any power in this situation. I have no control. I went from being a guy that could that could um, that that had responsibilities, and, and now I'm just kind of like this pin cushion, and the the pins are going in my dick. Yeah, <laughs> it sucks. Do you have an idea of how long it's going to last, or is is it just there's this indefinite aspect of it that kind of adds extra stress? Uh, it's an indefinite aspect because in, in your mind, you think I'm always going to feel this way. I'm always going to hurt. I'm always going to suffer. Air hurts. Everything hurts. But if I had 35 year old me went back to 20 year old me and said, Hey, listen, this is how it's going to be. I would never believe him. I would never believe future myself and be like, Hey, you're going to actually get to a point where you're stronger than you were before you were wounded physically. Hmm. No joke. The body has an incredible, like that three-legged Labrador I adapted. <laughs> <laughs> How many surgeries did it actually take? And and when you're talking about an incredible number of surgeries, what is it like every other week? Is it general anesthesia each time? Like how how ridiculous does that cadence get? Okay, so um, I had 28 surgeries, which were irrigation and debridements. These were to clean out and control the infection. And then I had five surgeries that were real serious reconstructive surgeries. So these 28 of these surgeries in which three of them or two, no, two of them were reconstructive within those 28 would occur in the first three months of my time in the hospital, right out from the, right after I got wounded, Three months of I'm in patient, I'm in the hospital, and I'm doing irrigation debridements under general anesthesia because they are scraping out the dead flesh and all that stuff. In Balad Air Base, I had that while I was uh, conscious. 
Mm. Can you believe this? They ran out of anesthetic or anesthesia. They were like, you're going to have to do this awake. I don't know what that was about. They were like, we'll juice you up on morphine, and we're just going to shoot hit you with some steel wool. And uh, that was the first time I actually passed out because of pain. So, like, you, you are really run through the ringer as far as that goes. And then after that, reconstructive surgeries. These are skin grafts, free flap. So these aren't just, like, the surface layer. This is going to be all the muscle, capillaries, everything. And then and that's going to be in nerve grafts and bone grafts. Um, and that's going to come from elsewhere on your own body. Yeah, so it's going to have a, a better chance of taking and not yeah. rejecting. It's going to come from your body. And uh, in the case of my leg, my leg, I never got infection on my arm. Not one. But I got infected on my leg. And I ended up in the ICU because of that and almost ended up losing my leg and my arm in that situation. And that's where they're taking the grafts from, is the leg? Yeah, they took it from yeah. my thigh. And so then I started having to harvest, harvest such a weird term, but they're taking harvest grafts from my other leg to put onto, to replace the flesh lost on the original leg that was Jesus a donor Christ. side. Yeah, yeah, it's a real mess. Yeah, so I, I have this very like kind of kindred relationship with like Frankenstein in that sense. <laughs> like he's just like this. <laughs> Butchered. You get the little studs Man. coming out of your neck too, eventually. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, I'm just waiting for my my scarred bride show up. <laughs> bride. Yeah, dude. It's a. Uh, it's it's a. Uh, you have to, but you also like have other people in your outpatient platoon, other wounded guys who you are like trading stories with. You're like, oh, you're ahead of me in this this process. Yeah. What worked for you? What happened? And so you're you're trading all these stories and you're figuring it out as you go. And you're like, okay, well, I'm going to wait on this. And, and what ended up being one of the best things in such a lame response is time. If you give things time to settle out, then you can see where you're at and then go from there. But that is tough to do when you are in a massive haze of medication, you know, to find your baseline, find whether you go, okay, I can live with this for the next 40, 60 years question of tinkering, you know, and what's, you know, your, your gains in, uh, uh, functionality and reducing pain to possibly, uh, kicking a hornet's nest and causing more damage every time they go in. So yeah. it's, it's, it's heavy stakes. When you're talking to other people who are patients as well, does it do more good or bad? And I say that because mm. you can, you know, ask them about what's going on with them and have something to kind of look forward to, but they're not doctors and they're not your doctor. So does That's it cause right. stress or relief? It causes more stress talking to guys that are wounded in the, the, in your, your generation, in your group, people ahead of you, it causes, it's more relief because you see these guys doing Iron Man and all sorts of stuff. You know, they're like, I'm the CrossFitter champion in Rhode Island. You're like, wow, that's pretty awesome. I hope to be that one day. But uh, but all the other guys that are in your group, they're kind of, you're all kind of uh, stewing in a, uh, a pretty unstable and volatile world where everybody's health is not, 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 uh, not as best. So, yeah, it, it, it's, a, it's mostly you're worried and you're, you're very, very, um, you have a very dour outlook as far as your, what your future is going to be like. Um, yeah. you'd feel like, Hey, this is not going to work out. You know, you, know? you said something about you had like in the wounded warrior barracks, you had like prison gangs based on guys that had the same types of injuries. What's that yes. all about? Everybody clicked up based on their injuries. So you had the limb salvages. That would be me and my people. You're part of the limb salvage crew. <laughs> what do your jackets look like? 
they, I had a lot of Velcro because we could yeah. put on our clothes in weird ways because we okay. couldn't use our arms and legs very well. Mm. So we, we could like put on shirts uh, by opening them up from the back. And they're pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, I meant like your gang jackets. Like, uh, uh, you know, yeah. <laughs> you don't that stupid <laughs> question. You don't have to answer. It's probably going to be a massive endless pill bottle. <laughs> no, it's, uh, it's not good. It's not a good gang to be part of. I wouldn't jump in on it. You had the 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 amputees. Now th- I was at Bethesda Naval at the time when they split up. So Walter Reed, the uh, Bethesda was seriously wounded guys, seriously wounded dudes, uh, Marines and Navy, and people with like very complicated injuries. Walter Reed was your amputees, and then your burn guys, which in my opinion were the had the hardest. They went to San Antonio and then later on they would create a facility for people with traumatic brain injuries, like the serious ones where they really were like, they were in in trouble. You know what I mean? And so there was in our group, we had some amputees that would come over and do care at Bethesda. And then it's sad, but I'm, I'm not going to lie. We also had the PTSD crew. You know what I mean? People that were yeah. like filtering through the 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 um, seventh floor, which was like where all the the mental cases were. You know, mm. and everybody kind of kept to their little crews and their little circles, and uh, mostly based off shared experiences. And then, um, you know, we'd mix it up for these events. They take us to you know, senators' lunch or whatever, or like a fishing trip, which is super cool. But yeah, that's generally how it worked. Hmm. People like develop this "don't give a fuck" attitude when you're long term wounded or when you're spend enough time there oh wow well the punishments are much lighter it's kind of hilarious so in the regular military like if you stabbed another person like you you probably go to the brig or at the very least you'd be accosted and apprehended by the authorities you know for being a maniac but um but um in the wounded warrior barracks we had that situation guy stabbed another guy in the stomach uh, with this was just a, a misunderstanding this was okay. <laughs> so apparently the story was one guy was just resting peacefully in his bed and he was partially blind and another guy came in drunk and was bothering him without his pants on which you know uh then in his response the blind fella grabbed the gerber which had i think the one of the screwdriver tools extended and uh stabbed him in the stomach mm. right guy ends up on the ward and he's he's wounded and we just got a stern talking to that's all that happened he's like hey guys we need to control the drinking and some of these medications they react poorly with some of the uh with some of us and uh we just don't stab each other Mm. one team here you know what i mean so uh they were they really did try to have like velvety gloves and take care of us because it's not a good look to go and take a bunch of wounded guys who are, you know, having trouble dealing with issues and, um, and, and put them before, before the judge, you know, even though sometimes that you got to do that, you know? Yeah. Is that better or worse? Do you think that people who, who identify as soldiers and Marines and service members, you think they respond to the discipline or they need the, you know, the velvet gloves? No, they need the discipline. They need yeah. it because that's how the world's going to respond to you. You know what I mean? Like, that's a problem. I, I went through on this kind of magic carpet thinking as soon as I get out, once I'm retired and they, they push me out, out of the service, that I'm going to uh, go into uh, a world with rounded edges. And 
they the world this country does treat its wounded and its its veterans actually pretty well in some regards in some yeah. in some aspects but you still have to confront the realities of the real world and you're not going to get it your way it's just the way it is you know what i mean yeah when do you start to physically recover so you kind of have like a working mm-hmm. arm hand back like that how long does it take and are you working with dr kumar the whole time so we've been with dr kumar for about three years and uh, so 2009 i'd say i started getting onto a track where i was starting to get some functionality i was able to touch my fingers together i was able to get restore movement in my elbow uh, my elbow joint was blown out and i wasn't quite in that precipice of losing that limb and then we there but i was still dealing with a lot of pain issues and that hmm. pain would that real deal physical nerve pain and chronic pain issues would would last until 2012 okay. that would require further follow-on surgeries like a neurolysis to uh strip scar tissue away from that nerve that was giving me problems and and deaden that nerve a little bit and uh and then i was physically uh clear i was in the woods out of the woods with that but at the same time i'm on massive doses of narcotics all along the way and this would later lead to me um getting to join that wonderful population of people that are dealing with opiate opiate abuse and uh become become very heavily addicted to opiates yeah i don't think people associate that with it's not like a conceptually it's not hard to link those two but you deal with some like massive bodily injury you say it's taken you seven years still working on pain still working on full functionality how prevalent is pain medication dependency in the population from what you've seen i mean you spent a lot of time there and you know a lot of people uh who've been through something like this almost everybody almost everybody in our our 20 20 some odd platoon um i'd say over two-thirds were um physically and mentally addicted to the drugs you're going to become physically addicted because you're going to get a physical dependence because you're just constantly for a lot of guys that have uh, complex injuries like mine, where you're going to be in and out of surgeries. Like for some guys, they get their surgeries in, they go through their struggles for dealing with that, 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 uh, dependency on drugs, whether it's mental or just physical, they get, they separate from that and they're good to go. But when you have a case in my situation and a lot of guys, you're constantly going back in for revision, constantly getting work. And the military had a lot of wounded guys to deal with. And so they were on the, uh, they were working on this premise of like, Hey, it's your responsibility to manage this until you show us that you're not capable of managing it. Well, by nature, people that become opiate addicts become master manipulators and they hide these things. And so using to, to circle this around, um, not having too much, having not too much or having, yeah, having in this case, excess pride, not owning up to the fact that I had a problem, not bringing it to light. And I would, I would kind of, um, I would do everything in my power to minimize this as being an actual problem that I need to address. And increasingly as I alien myself with this use of these drugs, I found myself finding that was my sole outlet for, um, happiness and escape from like my present situation. Mm. And so a lot of guys, a lot of guys became dependent and later on as the military medicine, uh, the military, uh, became wise to this, 
they started catching on and figuring out, okay, we need to start closing up some of these loopholes where people are able to get in and get access to large quantities of narcotics and abuse them because they're, they're clearly not serving their purpose and there's yeah. not enough accountability. So it's like prescribed to you readily available. Like you're not going out trying to score. You're just like refilling a prescription that's probably massively overprescribed or what? Yeah, you could go in you could say back in the day, you could go in and you could say, uh, say, how many pills do you take a day? And you go, uh, eight. Yeah, eight. Take a day. Okay. When's the next time you want to come in? I'd prefer not to come in for two months. And they go, all right, we'll just give you um, however many pills to send you on your way. And then if you came in, you say, hey, listen, you know, you, you're typical of this, this kind of problem is you come in you know, a week or two, obviously, early. And you say, hey, listen, uh, this is just not cutting it. So now I need something a little stronger. And they throw more pills at you. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Obviously on request. It's a two-way yeah. street. You know what I mean? And so back then, they went on this policy, and there was a lot of people trading and bartering medication. There was a lot of, uh, what is that, is that stupid Popeye saying? I'll give you a nickel today or for a burger next week or some bullshit. There it was like, I'll give you, <laughs> like, uh, I'll give you half of my prescription or whatever. If you give me part of your prescription next week or whatever, you know, because people knew other people within that community that were, would have drugs. And also people would double dip. I've heard of this from other people <laughs> would double dip and they would go to different military uh, facilities. Like uh, they would go to the VA they go to the, and which weren't connected. Their systems weren't connected. So they could draw tons of medication. Um, that's super illegal. And, uh, and they closed up that, you know, thankfully, uh, but um that's was how people were getting by and, and, and maintaining this kind of, that kind of, uh, pathetic and awful lifestyle. What are you telling different people? You tell the person who dispenses the pills, something to get more pills. You'd probably tell yourself something to get by, but you also have like friends, family, teammates, and yeah, are they, are they saying like, Hey man, you look like shit or are they holding you accountable? Or you just, you said master manipulation, right? They're holding you accountable. So in your mind, you think you're like the most slickest dude on earth. You're like, I, no one has any idea that I have this massive problem, but you're a disaster. I mean, you have, you know, pill residue in your nose. It's clear. You just look like shit. You look super unhealthy. You're emaciated. You generally subsist off of cigarettes and sweets. You know, you look, it's like a bum and people will confront you. I had people, but what you do is you, of course, the nature of this, this illness, this disease, this addiction is that you push them away. As soon as they come to confront you, you're like, I'm not going to listen to this. I'm not dealing with this. And so it's, it's opiates are a very, it's a lonely drug. This is not, you know, two people screaming how they're going to reinvent Uber, you know, at each other, you know, Coke to the gills, you know, like <laughs> in a bathroom. It's not a fun social drug like that. This yeah. is a, this is an alienating shitty drug that when abused, ends up with somebody alone in their apartment, burning holes in their sheets. You know what I mean? On accident, they nod off. It's not a good look. And uh, yeah. what happens? Um, the, the military does catch on, takes time. Of course, there's always loopholes. You can always, uh, you know, people would go fishing at the, the ER, you know, going to the ER and they go, bring the control. You're going to, I want to be your problem until you deal with me. You know what I mean? Yeah. And uh, eventually they get wise to it. And they did. In my case, they caught on. They eventually caught on. It took them. I would say I was abusing those drugs for 
um, if I had to, to go back, because it's a slippery slope. When do you when did you slide from from legitimately using it to making up your own pill labels? And I would say uh, it was probably about four years that I was uh, abusing it pretty heavily, and um, until eventually I was assigned a doctor who looked over the, the paperwork and went, "Okay, party's over. That's it. There's no more." Was was the pill shit ever worse than the injury? Like to deal with? Did it ever get like that? Yeah. 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 Because I I I didn't know how to get out from it on my own. I felt like I have to get out from it on my own, and I had no idea how to go about that. And that drug makes you so mentally weak. It makes you into the weakest jellyfish punk ass person on earth like you really can't handle anything you can't handle any mental strife any physical pain without that crutch and so the thought of living life without that drug was was insurmountable and uh and then as you live this kind of awful lifestyle you start realizing like well this is all i got but in the in your mind though there is this like code that's running that says i this is not me this is not me. I don't want to be this for 20 years, for 10 years. I don't want to be this. This is, this is terrible, you know? Yeah. Um, but you just keep continually pushing people away. Thankfully, thankfully I never did anything during the time when I was an addict. Um, that was so grievous and so terrible that it could not be forgiven by my family or loved ones. I never got arrested. I never ended up hurting somebody. Um, uh, in that way, I just became just a lying scumbag, um, yeah. in the sense of covering up my addictions. So how do you pull out of this shit? Like what, uh, when, what, what actually, what actually enacted change and, um, probably sure that it wasn't a, you know, like, Oh, I, I just, they assigned me this dude. He said, party's over party's over. Right. Like how many, how many, how many times did it take for, uh, you know, for the engine to start, what was that like? It was legendary. It's something I take as a source of pride. I'm so proud of this. Um, it obviously has to be tempered. You know, it can't be like, this is something like super cool. Like It's just like, it's rooted in something that's like, like a weakness and something that I made a mistake, but it could, it was a place where I had an opportunity to be extremely strong and be responsible. And what happened, but I didn't think about it that way. But what I thought about back then was I went to my doctor and he said, listen, I've been doing all this alternative medicine stuff and I've been giving you your painkillers, but this is just like, this doesn't make sense. You shouldn't be drawing this many meds this far out from your last surgery, this far out from all, it just doesn't make sense. He's like, it's over. He's like, I'm going to give you three choices, buddy. He's like an old Korean. He didn't say buddy. He's like, I'm going to give you three choices. He's like, choice number one, you're going to go into rehab. Choice number two, you're going to take Suboxone, which is like some sort of drug to cover up your, it's like it blocks your receptors. It's like something else you have to remain on to keep from going into withdrawals. Like a methadone uh, type of thing? Like a, exactly, like a methadone. Or number three, you can handle this on your own. Well, I processed those options. Option number one, I wasn't going to take because I was like, I don't have a problem. And at least I wasn't going to let him think that. Option number two, I wasn't going to take because deep down, I didn't want to be on these drugs. I didn't want this. I hated this. I wanted, I would rather be like a samurai and go under a tree and cut my belly open. Like I was like, I just want to end this. I never thought about suicide, but I mean, I wanted to do this on my own. I wanted, 
an option that didn't require me to be dependent on someone else or something else. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of people would probably say in the, the world of addiction, I'm not super familiar, but they'd be like, you know, I, 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 I took this, this third choice with grace and with, uh, you know, um, uh, like, uh, like an adult, but I took it as like this bitter, angry, spiteful child. And I was like, well, fuck it. Then I'll just go cold Turkey. That'll show you. So I yeah. went back to my apartment and then I was like, Oh God, this was a terrible idea. But the, the bar had come down on the roller coaster and I was in for the ride. And so what I said to myself was, I was like, I'm going to do this because I'd never gone more than like two days without having drugs. And at this point, just to remind you, like anybody who's thinking about getting, uh, picking up an opiate addiction <laughs> out of the, <laughs> out of the four years, two months were pleasurable. Two months. The rest of it was just trying to keep up. You know what I mean? Just trying to trying to not be sick. Not not, not actually pleasurable, but you perceiving like, pleasure. Yeah, like the first two months was like you have the euphoria, the rush. You know, you just like you know a maniac, but you are like in a manic state on the drugs, and that seems like you're you're funny and fun when you're just really a prick. But um, the rest of that time, three months, three years, sorry, three years and ten months, you're just trying to not be sick. It's not a good return. It doesn't return well. It stinks. So I uh, put that to rest on that as far as that goes. That needs anything. That point needs to be belabored. But um, um, so I was like, I'm going to go go for two days. Well, the first night I was like in intense misery. I was really starting to start the withdrawals um, where your your pins and needles and your body's crawling and all this is sweating and panic and anxiety and everything. And I thought, wow, I don't think I'm going to be able to do this. So I called up the rehab clinic. And I was like, Hey, there's a guy I know who might need some help, you know? But then that thing that triggered in me that says like, you don't ask anybody for help. You don't go to help from people. You know, it's just not going to happen. You know, they're going to judge you. They're going to look at you. Everybody's been judging you because you've been living like a, you know, know, this horrible lifestyle, you know, and and throwing your life away in this way. So I, I didn't think about it that way. And so I went to day two and it was miserable. You know what I mean? All of the, awful bodily functions that come with it. But, um, when I got into day two, I said to myself, I'm going to get to day three on the sheer rage that I had felt towards how I had comported myself for the last four years, how I had sullied the trust and the love that was real that I had from other people around me. I am going to rage bitter and anger my way to the finish line. And so I would pace around my apartment and I would force feed myself to drink water. And I would dunk myself in ice cold water in my apartment, like a maniac until I got to day three. And I'm going off like 30 minutes to two hours of sleep each of those nights. So I was not, not well, you know, chain smoking at the time. Like, you know, that was like the thing I leaned on. I was like, I'll just, you know, smoke a bunch of cigarettes. You know? yeah. Um, that was like my Dr. Quinn medicine woman solution. <laughs> and so I kept pushing until I got to day three. And in day three, you start to feel that misery slightly lighten and you go, wow, now I'm in really like uncharted territories. I'm going to go to day four. And when you get to day four, you start getting out from underwater and then 
day five is like if i was probably around like a bunch of like black israelites i'd be like in that costume right now because like you reach this like relevatory state where you're like i felt i'm feeling something right now that is like magical and like pseudo religious or whatever like it's it's your you are alive again mm. day five when you're you, free when how many days do you count when you stop counting what day it is I never, I never stop. I think it's always keeps you grounded. Like now I'm at six years and oh God, April, six years and eight months. Nice. And I keep going. Yeah. That's easy. You're coming up on like 15 years post injury soon, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty wild. It's pretty wild. Like, and once I got out from that, here's where I'm very lucky. It's such good dudes I served with. And I have such a stable and great family that I didn't really get much prodding, uh, internally to go back towards drugs. I had good things come my way from not using. And so when I stopped using drugs, I did become grounded in the sense that I was like, all right, I'm not going to be immediately allowed back into the fold. Cause I was a bit of a jerk off for these last Year. That was, I was, uh, I was, uh, I was exhausting, you know? And so I need to come in with a little bit of, uh, I got to come in subtly and kind of quietly and, and prove myself. And over the, that time I was able to, and that kept building on itself. So, um, it was like people with opiate addictions often face, you know, relapse and issues like that. But in yeah. my case, I've never felt that fear or that drive or that urge, um, not even once in being around people in my travels that have used drugs. I've never gone towards that or wanted to do that because it's, I've had too many good returns from being just, uh, sober. And so, uh, you know, I don't preach that to everybody like, Hey, this is how, this is my method. And it's so easy to do. Um, but it worked for me really well. Yeah. You're not going to write a book on the rage method to, uh, (laughs) I'll speak to it. Yeah. Habit, habit breaking. (laughs) A lot of system of the down was helpful. You could, you could come up with an acronym that just spells out like pride rage and then, uh, sell it and market it and do a seminar. I would like to see the people that, that accidentally type pride rage into their, uh, Google search. <laughs> they were like, I was expecting something else. <laughs> uh, this is, this is not what I was hoping for. Pride rage. Yes. Wow. And, and tell you what, um, uh, and then from there, um, I had to slowly build back. I had to build, put myself back together. And yeah. then of course the first building block there was like, okay, now what I got, I'm uh, a bum living in a apartment, single bedroom apartment. Everything smells like cigarette smoke. And I hate smoking cigarettes. Once I was like off of the drugs, I was like, all right, well, I got to quit that. Mm-hmm. So quit smoking. And I was like, well, that'll be easy since I quit opiates. Like it's a lot more difficult right but yeah. smoking was pain in the ass to quit too so i quit that and then i i was like i need to get myself in shape because i was like a wayfishly sickly looking boy and so i started going to like the uh military gym henderson hall right. and so i started creeping over there and i was like well this is a free gym i'm retired i can use this and so i started going to that gym because i was like obsessive and really into this and i was like i'm gonna get i'm gonna get good at this i started building a social circle and I started getting confidence. And from there, I was able to build from physical, social, kind of hit all those. Not that I, I subscribe to the Maslow 
pyramid of needs, but you start hitting some of those things and yeah. uh, good things start coming your way. But I was living this like monastic lifestyle of like uh, piling uh, knowledge into my, my atrophic, atrophic brain and like a uh, weak little body, a lot of like good food and living pretty healthy. And then I started saying to myself, well, this shockingly gets boring after a while. And what do I really want to do? Hi, everyone. Matt here again to give you one more update. You've heard us on the show talk about how to support us via PayPal and Patreon. Uh, Both of those links are available on our website at thankyounowwhat.com. I wanted to give you a quick update on our Patreon site. So for those of you who don't know or those of you who typically skip our commercials, Patreon is a subscription service for content creators where you can subscribe as the patron and sign up for as little as $1 per episode. So now that Ben and I have hit our stride with the show, we have gone ahead and uh, incentivized our Patreon tiers. So our Patreon tiers are $1, 2 and $5. If you are a $1 and up subscriber, we'll be releasing some bonus content on our Patreon channel. So we're thinking of uh, like a monthly behind the scenes episode uh, or other content to enable our discussion, such as a military 101 episode or something like that. If you are a $2 and up subscriber, you will get to direct some of our content. So we're going to be doing a quarterly listener directed episode where our patrons are going to suggest topics and then we're going to go to social media to vote on the topics. We'll then craft an episode around our listeners topic of choice. For $5 and up, you get all the other stuff, and we're going to send you a t-shirt. So we have one of our friends right now working on a t-shirt design for the show. We hope to have one done by the end of the month, which is the end of the year. And uh, we're just going to send one of those to all our $5 and ups. Uh, We also have, uh, obviously, a place to purchase the t-shirt once we get it up. And uh, we'll look to sh- look forward to sharing with that with you uh, pretty soon. So stay tuned. Check out our Patreon, uh, patreon.com slash thank you now what or linked from our website. Thanks. And let's get back to the show. So you had like a Rocky montage. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I really did. It did. And, and, and I had like a lot of people cheering me on. I had a lot of people that were really great, positive people around me. They're like, this is, this is a good change. And you know what? God, I can't stress this enough. I had such good buddies from the core, good friends around me and good family. Cause they, they kind of gave me the tip of the hat. They kind of like looked at me like, Hey, this is good. But there was no like, okay, now I'm going to go and get up in your shit about what these last four years has been like for me, because I know I was like an exhausting jerk off that needed to be like told like, Hey man, I'm glad to see you're doing good, but it's time to atone. And so that's a very important aspect of when you're recovering from something like that is to go and and be honest with people and say, Hey, listen, I, I really did not stick that landing very well. Hmm. Like I really screwed this up. Yeah. Yeah. And people will give it to you. People that are good to you. People, well, people, and you know, if they don't, you know, that's that's their right as well. You know what I mean? You have to take that. But that's yeah. super important. And so, um, but while doing this kind of um, like preparing for my fight with Drago, I was like, okay, I think I want to like go see the world. And I'm very curious about the world. But how am I going to go about doing that? And uh, and I started looking into work exchange. 
And that led me in 2016 to head to France and become a, a farmhand. So in the work exchange world, you have, you have a very diverse group of people that are kind of outcasts and alternative types that you don't really think about, I guess you say, drifting around in the world. You got people that are in their gap year. So you have your typical kind of college students. These are kids from Europe and, and Australia and England, things like that. And they're kind of taking a break. Or you have people that are dropping out of the workforce because they're searching for this kind of dream or this ideal that eluded them while they were working their nine to five. And then you have a guy, whatever I categorize as, you know, this pride rage, <laughs> pride rage boy. <laughs> But I was always, but I was always curious. That was my biggest thing. I'm super curious about the world, other cultures, other people. And that's what led me to embark into that and, and do stuff that generally I'm not suited for. Cause I'm quite uh, honestly timid and uncomfortable in a lot of new situations, but I also, I wasn't going to get it if I didn't put myself out there and do it. So it was just, that was the price of admission. And so 76 countries, how many languages? Well, I studied uh, Russian before, but my Russian really sucks. And I studied some French, but I picked that up because I had an ex-girlfriend that was French. And so really, it, honestly, it's Spanish. So I would pick up a survival amount of kind of everything, uh, a little bit of Swahili, a little bit of Serbo-Croatian, whatever, but I would quickly dump it because I would really mostly lean on uh, the fact that if you go to some of these countries, they do speak English with the exception yeah. of like, when you get into the French countryside, you got to speak French. When you go to South America, you got to speak Spanish. Like these are countries that are going to hold you accountable yeah. um, in that aspect. But yeah, once you start getting into that world and meeting other people, they, they lead you that pulls the thread and they tell you, Hey, if you're here, you better go over to here. You got to get over to this place. You got to take a trip through here and you go, all right, well, I'm going to figure this out. I'm going to piece it together. I'm going to take a bus from here to there. I'm going to pick up this job working. Um, I was working as a uh, caretaker in a Latvian farm in a place called Latgalia. It's one of the best gigs I ever worked, but it was also one of the weirdest and most frightening. So when I showed up there, it was me and this 76 year old man, this American guy who would change his names, change his name like every other day. So some days he would just come to you and just say like, I don't respond to whatever name you're calling me. Like I'm, I'm Titus today. Okay. Today I'm Roger, you know, and myself and this guy would, tend this farm and make sure pretty much the animals don't die and uh look after the farm while the the owner was working in in portugal and uh it pushes you to a certain limit because you're you're dealing with you know it's negative 10 negative 20 and you're out there uh neighbors all around there speak russian um they don't speak a lick of english and you are with a stranger living in this cabin in the woods and you're cutting down trees to for firewood i mean like they, they're varied in different, different, uh, different jobs, but they all open up doors to worlds that you'd never really realize existed, you know, yeah. dealing with uh, all sorts of people. Do you stay in touch with people you run into? Cause it seems like if you're on the move yeah. all the time, like it's gotta be tough to hold on to the right kind of relationships, right? It is. And that's exactly why I'm actually done. So that's why I'm moving to Chile. That's why, like, I've reached this point where I've, I've been on the road for five years and on average moving countries. For a period of time, I was moving countries every month. And I was moving cities every week to two weeks. And so while you get this chance to experience a lot of places and have this 
superficial relationship, which is super fun with people and get to know cultures and everything, but you only get on a superficial level and that is taxing and it does change you as a person. And what you want is you want something a little deeper. You want to entrench yourself further into a community and you do lose, uh, you do give up. Um, there's, uh, there's just, a, there's something that's lacking. That's not sustainable, you know, mm-hmm. and there's a certain coldness. Like there's, I've met people that have been on the road for like 12 years living this lifestyle and they're almost like weird byzantine vampires like they sit in a corner at a party and they're like i am so uninterested with all of this i've seen this many times you know? <laughs> <laughs> they're just big time people all yeah time. they're like they're like yeah this is good but i remember i had a similar dish in sarajevo when the archduke got assassinated you're like oh no you're insane like that's not good you can't do this forever you have to eventually put it down because it's not actually natural i think the digital nomad lifestyle there's a lot of influencer uh chicanery that uh feeds into this idea that you can just be this like this weird ideal that operates out of a a place that doles out good chai dirty chai lattes but that life sucks after a while that's not there's a lot of unfulfillment in that too and it stinks and so uh this pandemia uh they call it pandemic in English. Pandemic, <laughs> like, uh, um, caused me to reevaluate. I was working as a commercial photographer on a on a vina in uh, Chile yeah. when it hit, and we had to go into lockdown there because Chile, like, they weren't playing around. Like, you had to stay in, and uh, we were on a farm, so it was like easy. And um, while I was there, I was kind of reevaluating, like, hey, like, am I just going to keep this up again for another five more years? You know, is this what I want? Or is there a somewhere, you know, is there was a, I want to find a good work-life balance. Yeah. You know, whatever that is, you know? And, um, and yeah, I want to find that as hackney and corny as that sounds. And so like, I was like, you know what? I want to continue exploring South America. I like South America a lot. I met a girl I like down there. There's a lot of people I know that when I worked in Cordoba, Argentina, they had moved to Santiago. So I have friends down there that I know. And many, many people would say, well, why don't you live in Washington, D.C. and be close to your buddies from the core and all your family and everything like that? And I, I absolutely, they are the number one. That is the number one reason I want to go home every time. This is easy as it comes, but I, I, I can do that. I can balance that. I can have time to come home because they are living their lives and, and I want to see them more, but I'm not going to see them as much if I'm constantly in the film and fucking Suriname or some bullshit. Like I need, sorry, Suriname, but I need to be, you know, I need to have, I want to have a base. I want to have an apartment. I want to uh, be, be close to my girlfriend and, um, and try to find, I'll make it work. I'll figure it out. Yeah. <laughs> With your photography, right? You say you do commercial photography, but it sounds yeah. like it's not your passion. But what what are the better aspects of photography that you do enjoy, and what kind of stories are you trying to tell for the viewer? Oh, it's incredible! So, why did I get into photography? It's a pretty cool story. I think it's pretty cool. So, one of the neighbors that uh, lives up in Arlington near my folks where my folks live and where I was born and everything grew up for a bit, um, where I call home. He's a national geographic photographer and he had worked there for like 30 some years. He was like an old soul, old hippie guy. And during my time when I was an addict and afterwards I would go up to his place and we'd hang out and he'd just talk photography. And back when I was 
an attic that was kind of just like white noise that just kind of accompanied just like filling out a, a rather meaningless and pointless day that I wasn't able to like, you know, do anything. Cause I was like a bum. But later I was like, this is really, I was starting to actually understand the spirituality and the beauty that actually is involved with photography. It is training yourself to be an observer. And there is an etiquette and art to, to telling stories and getting stories from people with photography. And it's also leveraging and dealing with expectation because we are trained constantly. I had this expectation when I was in the core that I was going to do my four. I was going to check my boxes. I was going to get out and I didn't really know what I was going to do, but I felt like I was going to be as consequential when I got out of the core as I was when I was in, or as I perceived myself to be. I had this expectation that after I was wounded, I was going to ride on this magic carpet towards recovery. And then I was going to glide into some position that was just as important as being in the core. I had all of these expectations and with photography, it's the same. For example, I, I just went to Dia de los Muertos in Pátzcuaro in Michoacán. It's famously where they celebrate Dia de los Muertos in its purest sense, its purest form. And when I came into it, I thought, okay, I'm going to shoot photos. I'm going to get these classic photos of, you know, an abuelita, a grandmother, like lighting a candle or maybe some of the like skull face stuff. You know what I mean? Like I was like, oh, this is Dia de los Muertos. But I had really yeah. no idea what I was actually really in for and what I was in for. And what I noticed was during the preparations, when they're setting up the ofrendas, the altars to remember and to draw the spirits and memories of the dead to come back to the real world. That was a part of Mexican culture that was incredible that I haven't seen anywhere. It's recalibrating a relationship with death. And how do I show that in photos? And when you see an entire family of multi-generational there helping and assisting and setting up this ofrenda and telling stories and getting drunk and laughing and crying. All of these things occurring while people are playing music, mariachis, while fireworks are going off. And while tourists, not many because it's a time of pandemic, but tourists tiptoe through this cemetery, which is completely not ours in the sense that I felt like this foreign observer that, but, but I was allowed to be there. And so I had to, I had to capture that in any way I could. Uh, like I think as a, in the, in the way a machine gunner does accuracy through volume, shoot, 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 shoot. You get out there and you shoot <laughs> and you get good if you do it eventually and you figure out your own style. And so that's what photography is, is you're on the ground and you're, you're sometimes, well, that day I had a, a hike uh, 12 kilometers because I, I stopped running the, the combi buses, the shared buses. So I had to hike in the night, you know, along the highway to get back to uh, my Airbnb. So like having the ability to kind of adapt and deal with things on the ground, you get your wheels, you have strong legs, you, you're able to deal with like, you know, sitting in positions and places for a long time to wait for the shot or wait for the story to develop that you want to tell and then shoot. Got a lot of connections to the military in a lot of ways. <laughs> yeah. Patience. Yes. And observation. And, yeah. and, uh, it's, um, and it's beautiful. Something that will always be in my life. Something that I feel like I, I could, I could, um, develop and, and get better at and good at. And there's lots of disciplines within that. And so, um, I, I like to do volunteer work. I have tried my hand at, at applying, like when I'm home for a little bit of time, uh, working at the, the men's shelter with the group, uh, little friends for peace, which doesn't sound like the kind of place I would be hanging out in <laughs> a little friend for peace. <laughs> like with my rage method, <laughs> yeah. but 
it's a chance to just try my hand and get into things where I can apply some of these experiences that really sucked in my life. And hopefully, God, just hopefully eke it out to something that's a little better for someone else. You know what I mean? So they can use that. What do you think is next in this arc? Like, I'm sure that mm-hmm. y- your photography has, you know, uh, anthropological, sociological affect to it too, right? Do you consider yourself yes. a student of those fields as well? Or, you know, yes. is there anything that you can tell us not to ask like an unanswerable question, but after the last yeah. five or so years, like what can you tell us about people that you wouldn't have when you wouldn't be able to otherwise? Oh, we have a lot of the same interests and a lot of the same desires. We have different hats. <laughs> we have different, we have different uh, coverings. We have different little quirks and different places where we say, this is the hill I'm going to die on for this cultural aspect of this part of my being. But a lot of people are concerned about their, their futures and their families that's connected. That's a very boring observation, but it's an honest one. That's one I've noticed all around the world. But I do try to collect these kind of cultural nuggets, these old gems, when people explain to me, you know, things like, I remember one of the most Sisyphean and fun tasks that I've done is when I went out to do development in Morocco. Okay. So I was told to come out to the Sahara Desert and help with development, as help these, these Berber tribe improve their chances of getting tourists to come out all this way. Now to take all this way, it's a 13 hour bus from Casablanca to Marrakesh. It's 11 hours. I think Yeah, 13 hours from Marrakesh to Mohammed de Gizlani. It's a long way on bus. It sucks. You're out on the edge near um, the Algerian border. I believe it's Algeria. Yeah. Anyways, you're in the, the gateway to the Sahara. And um, when I showed up to this tribe, what happened was these guys uh, formerly were able to eke out a living as Berbers, nomadic tribesmen in the desert, but they built a, the Moroccan government built a dam in a place called Warzazad, and it caused the Sahara Desert to become even more dry, if you can believe that. And uh, as a result... I've been to Warzazad. No way, really? Yeah. Apparently it's lush. They have a bunch of golf courses there and everything. It's supposed to be pretty Gucci. Wait, yeah. wait what year were you there? Like 2008? I've been there a few times, but um, yeah, I went with my uh, SF team. Uh, no way. Yeah. I was there in 2016, and uh, when I got there, what was the job? Well, they just wanted somebody to draft for them emails, messages to send because to Russian Facebook bots. They thought all those girls were real. So every day, they would have me write like 15 of these girls. <laughs> programs to have them try to come out to like beseech them please come out to this this little desert community you know what i mean and Mm. uh what was the takeaway from this after i left after two weeks there i was like well i've had enough of this horseshit but what was the takeaway these guys were fascinating they were cool they were telling me about living in the desert but what these guys were was that the world was changing rapidly big things were moving around in the world and they were reacting and trying to play catch up with it and they're all trying to manage manage their little garden as best they could. That is because increasingly more competitors in it. So whether like the, the Icelandic people have a term called Heinskor, which means mm. uh, home stupid. And it means that you've spent too much time like 
fucking around in Iceland, (laughs) not getting out and seeing stuff. And what you need to do is you got to realize, I'm sorry, world, but you got to realize it's more and more risky to be home stupid these days. You got to be realized there's other players and other things at work. I don't even want to come at that in that, that kind of tone. Like I'm condescendingly that now I sound like the Byzantine vampire, uh, but yeah. like you just, it can't afford there are other players that work out there. And, and this, so for me, what have I learned from this is that like, if you mix it up enough around the world, you could find yourself finding like a, Oh, if I got to move to Chile or move to another place, it's like I can adapt to this. This is not that big of a leap. This is not big of a change because in the end, like we're all kind of in the, we're all kind of in the same game. Some of those hospitable people on earth, Albanians. Good God, man, Albanian listeners out there. Keep it up. (laughs) Ben, do we have a big Albanian listenership? We can, Not yet, we, but we're, we're working on it. We are, yeah. Uh, we, uh, Broadcast we, out of Tirana. Yeah, there was something that uh, we could see our downloads by country. Well, I don't know yeah. if we still have that. Yeah, but yeah, we were. there was some crazy stuff coming up. And I'm sure some of them were probably like service members just listening in their travels or whatever, right? Like if, yeah. you, if you get someone, you know, in like uh, Qatar or some, you know, person probably sitting at an airport you know, somewhere down, but it was actually pretty cool to see some of the other countries. So you think the king of Qatar, dude. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. P one listener. (laughs) (laughs) So what do you, what do you got lined up next after the Chile move? What are you, what are you looking at? Hosting your own show, working for Nat Geo, some kind of content platform, writing for, photographing producing what yeah so i'm gonna attack it from like uh from a couple different angles what i'm gonna do is uh first i'm gonna get settled down in chile get set up there with a nice little visa and all that fun stuff and then uh i want to of course sell prints from these last five years i have uh, like 67,000 photos and i'd say yeah. probably out of that like 500 could be made to prints you know, and, and I want to sell that, but that's kind of like a small scale just for fun project, but more yeah. important, I want to, um, create some way form of being able to share experiences from my travels. And I think people are going to be hungry to get out and stretch their legs after this whole thing is over. It's yeah. not the world of the coronavirus thing. And, uh, and like, they want to, they want to go and, and move around and explore and, and get in touch with people and <laughs> get close to people. So, uh, talking about that, and kind yeah. of let that kind of shape itself because I think what is the takeaway from my story would be is that I was reacting and kind of like the pachinko game in Price is Right. Mm-hmm. Like I didn't make a concerted effort to say this is exactly where I want to be. All of these things were reactions and figuring out on the go, like pick up basketball, what I'm going to do with myself and, and being really honest with myself at the end of the day in what made me happy and what I could sustain and I could make work. And, and hopefully after my time is up in this world, it will actually have gone somewhere a little bit better. You know what I mean? It's, it's really, and it's important to realize that you're, you got to check your ego and just try to work. You have to build those foundational parts up. You have to, you have to work with the foundation. You can't just like start skipping. Like I'm going to run with the bulls. You know what I mean? Yeah. You should, I think you should do like a coffee table book. Like, uh, Cause you got a bunch of pictures, yeah. you got a good story. You 
could, you know, start working on that, start like dictating it, kind of yeah. organizing your thoughts. You, you obviously have, you can just like fly somewhere and snap a bunch of pictures. Like you have the livid experience of telling what you were going through when you saw this thing and, and the weeks leading up to it, the people that you had met, everything that's outside of the frame yeah. as well. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think, uh, and the place that is, I've, I've always been kind of an, uh, uh, a layman, like an amateur at what I do, you know? So I'm still, it's like, uh, it's something that like, I like being on the ground. I like, uh, you know, working in the muck, you know, the kind of things like that. That's where I like to be. That's where I want to be, you know, that's where yeah. I just find myself. Well, and if you get a book with a lot of pictures in it, Marines will buy it too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Simpletons. <laughs> yeah. I tell you, man. Uh, one thing I meant to ask, but didn't get, uh, you didn't really get a chance to yet was like, I think you're the first person we've had on that's been medically retired. So no way. Really? Well, you're Seriously. episode 15. Wicked. That's incredible. Yeah. So yeah. I'm yeah. kind of like so, leading the charge in the retiree front. You're the, uh, okay. you're the sole authoritative voice right now. So like, and okay. I'll try to contextualize it a bit first, but, uh, yeah. so, you know, some people join the military, they have a contract, the contracts up, they make a choice to leave. They want to do something else. Sure. Some people stay in for a career, they retire, then they have to make a choice to do something else. You, you know, that choice was kind of taken away from you. Right. Yeah. And sort of yeah. Dicta- dictated by the world. So a couple things, how does that feel? But also I wasn't injured in combat, but based on what conversations I've had with some other people, do you ever feel like, man, they got their last licks in and I didn't get a chance to go back? Oh, wow. You really opened the pan. That is a good question. I want to make sure I get this right. Uh, no, at the time I was so thoroughly banged up. I had literally, uh, my arm like hanging at my side. Like I was like Bob Dole. That's how they described it. Like my arm was like super jacked up and they just gave me no options. They said, you are going, you're out of the service. That's it. Right. And, um, that was incredibly humiliating. Like, and humiliation is an incredible, uh, incredibly traumatic force because it's like, you, you just feel like, wow, like I, 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 I serve for my buddies. I sacrifice for my buddies. But now that bomb that really we didn't get to like, we didn't get to take any names over that took like the use of my arm, you know, for the rest of my life. And I know it could have been much worse, but like it is incredibly humiliating if, if, if that's how I'd sum it up. But later having gotten stronger, no, it's crazy. If I was probably to meet that guy who wounded me, I would not want to harm him. As weird as that sounds. I feel like he would probably actually, I'd probably want to more have a conversation with him because he was a participant from a, from a, in in his own way. He put his hat name, he put his, he put his name in the hat. You know what I mean? Mm. In his own right. And so like, no, I don't see like now I don't feel like they got one over on me or they got the best of me, you know? I feel like I came back stronger and I think I, I can be a, a great model citizen and considering where I've been and how I've conducted myself before, that's like a pretty astounding feat. Like, you know what I mean? So I, I, um, no, I, I find it as a source of pride. Getting wounded was an opportunity to not one that I asked for and not one I would recommend anyone, but it's an opportunity to, to get strong, really strong. 
Mm. Yeah. But I'm, I'm retired, but that retirement, that retirement is dangerous because that is an incentive killer. And there's a lot of guys I know that were in the, the critical platoon who, when they cycled out, they didn't know what to do with themselves. They need to be pointed in a direction. They need to be kind of in a blast furnace, you know, or they just come undone. And that's, that's heartbreaking to see. So it's going to, it's going to really test you. You're gonna have to work muscles that you weren't so adept at working, um, which is going to be get up and make stuff for yourself. That's yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, 15 years later, you're still like best friends with some of the guys who pulled you out of the truck. Yeah. Put you back together and, and put you on the helicopter. What's it like to maintain that kind of connection so many years later? Uh, it's the, it's, more important to me than anything else in this world, honestly, because it's something I never actually really got to have and cultivate. Like a lot of people like have their like friend that they've had since second grade, you know? And I, I, this is like, boy, I'm really going to jump into like upper middle class guy problems. But like, (laughs) but like I, uh, (laughs) but like I, I, I wanted to have like best friends, but we were moving all the time. And like, at some point I did like kind of become like the original emo kid of DC. You know, I was like, I'll give up. I'm just going to be sullen and morose. And you know, like that's <laughs> going to work out well, you know, and, uh, it does it, it pays back in shitty dividends. And so, um, being in the service and having this connection to guys who we all come from very like different backgrounds. Uh, but like we would have been best friends outside of the service, but probably wouldn't have crossed paths because we did live very different lives. But in the service, we did cross paths. We did share these really bizarre and unique experiences and we did become and stay friends, uh, after and, um, at the risk of sounding like a total, like softy, but like in my travels, that's, that's like my family and them. It's like what, what, and who I miss the most about the U S that's like the, that is the reason to come home. Cause I like, and it sounds crazy, but I live for those like weekends, that weekend that I get to see those guys, um, and get together in Philly at Dave's place and, and all get together. And, and, uh, I just constantly, it's just laughing. I can't stop laughing because there's hilarious dudes and they're, 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 they're my big brothers and they'll always be. So we ask the same question of everyone who comes on the show. Mm. So talking to you, I know that the military gave you probably some of the most meaningful experience, but also as a result of which gave you some of the lowest points as well. Yeah. Uh, which is, which is <laughs> kind of, you know, um, pretty heavy. So who are you today? If you never served, I'd be an uh, arm wrestling champion, <laughs> left arm. <laughs> Lefty. No, no, I mean, all these incredible achievements with left arms. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the best thumb wrestler often. No, I'd, uh, I would be, uh, can't imagine. I can't. No. no, I know. I know. I listen to other reviews and I was like, damn, I gotta have a good answer for this. I don't, I don't have a good answer because I can't imagine it. It's, 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 Maybe I'd have like pink shorts and a like a powder blue shirt. I'd be at UVA. I don't know. I'd be some guy that everybody want to punch at a bar. I don't know. <laughs> damn, it's tough. Yeah. <laughs> Instead of the guy that everyone wants to punch a bar, still. <laughs> I don't yeah. know, man. It's tough. I could not tell you. No way. Nope. It's just. 
I am. I am. I'm with this. This is the lot I got, and this and this is what I like. This is where I'll be. I'm gonna keep. Uh, I'm gonna keep fighting because I'm stubborn yeah. as hell. That's what. I yeah. like. That's like my my number one skill is adaptable and stubborn. They don't work really. They're contradictory, but they they make uh, good bedfellows at times. What would you be? Yeah, I said this like uh, last a episode. Player. A retired professional baseball player, uh, unless I, you good. know, unless I was still playing late into my career, like Kurt Schilling or someone. What position would you play? Uh, pitcher or center field. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I played shortstop. I love baseball. I, I always travel with uh, my mitts. Oh yeah. Always. Nice. Always throwing ball. It's great. It's also you feel like a champ because you're American. Like we develop those skills to like throw. Yeah. And like, yeah. then you get to watch like a French person throw, and you're like, all right. <laughs> it's like, uh, it's like when you when you um, when you toss a grenade. You ever watch a guy toss a grenade, and you're like, where yeah. the fuck did you grow up? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you're not gonna need that. You're not gonna carry this. We don't want to. We don't want them to see this. Yeah. yeah. Don't overthink it. I remember one time in a firefight. This is very cornball. I I would yell. H E D P out like that D P was really important to call that out. <laughs> yeah, was it just H E out? Oh, it's a dual purpose. <laughs> it's like what a dork. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Thank You Now What, a podcast about life after service. Be on the lookout for Chase as he travels the world. Well, scratch that as he finally settles down and figures out what's next. Be sure to follow him on Instagram at Chase underscore me around the world. When you have time, check out our new website and especially click on the nonprofits link. As always, thanks for listening to us. Please subscribe, rate, review, follow, and join us next time on Thank You Now What.